Hello and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak and I work as the deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Daily Pravda. How big is the shadow of the former US President Donald Trump over NATO? What can the alliance expect from Joe Biden, his successor in the White House? What are the main threats and how should the transatlantic organization deal with Russia, China or climate change? The NATO summit takes place in Brussels on June 14th, and the leaders of member states will discuss the future of the alliance and the NATO 2030 initiatives. I also have had this debate. My guest is former Danish Prime Minister and, of course, former Secretary General of NATO, Andreas Fogh Rasmussen. He led the alliance from 2009 till 2014, and he is a founder and chairman of Rasmussen Global. Listen to our conversation. Let me start uh, with something which is, let's say, a history, but very recent history. Do you think that the presidency of Mr. Donald Trump left any legacy NATO will have to deal with in the medium or maybe even in the long term? Yeah, definitely. I think the Trump presidency, we saw demonstrated uh, in real life what happens when the Americans retreat from the world affairs. What we have seen is what history has taught us, that when the Americans retreat, the bad guys advance. And that's actually what we have seen. President Putin of Russia, President Xi Jinping of China, Kim Jong-un of North Korea, Saddam of Syria, all those guys uh, have got more room maneuver because we have been lacking determined American global leadership. NATO will have to deal with that. And um, I appreciate that uh, Biden has stated America is back. That's what we need. So I think this will be the main purpose of the NATO summit and also the summit between the the American president and the European Union to demonstrate that uh, the classical uh, close relationship between America and Europe is back. How different will President Joe Biden be in comparison with Trump? And what does it mean for NATO? Mr. Trump transacted with the world rather than leading it. And I think uh, for President Biden, it will be important to state that our relationship is not a transactional relationship. It's a relationship based on values, shared democratic principles. And um, this will be our point of uh, departure. And Biden will, uh, as a person, symbolize the leadership of uh, the free world. Biden has pledged to organize and host a global summit for democracy later this year. And um, together, the world's free societies represent more than 60% of the global economy. That's a formidable force uh, if we unite and if we do not divide. So if we unite, that force will create some respect in Moscow, in Beijing and elsewhere. 
to know Mr. Biden quite well, I would say, because you meet the Secretary General of NATO basically during his term when he was in the White House as vice president. Of course, the leaders will have a limited time uh, at, at NATO summit uh, to express themselves. But of course, uh, Mr. Biden uh, will be, I would say, the star of the summit. So what do you expect? What will be his message to NATO and maybe also to the EU? I think he will deliver two messages in NATO. Firstly, America is back. You can count on us. Uh, I'm committed to Article 5 uh, that states that we consider an attack on one and attack uh, on all. The problem was uh, that President Trump raised doubts about his commitment to Article 5. So that would be Biden's first message. I'm committed to Article 5. You can count on us. But his second message, that will be very similar to the messages <laughs> that came uh, from uh, President Trump. Namely, the Europeans must invest more in defense. And we shouldn't uh, forget that the decision that all NATO allies uh, will fulfill the goal to invest at least 2% of their economy in defense. That decision was taken during the Obama-Biden administration in September 2014. By the way, my last summit as Secretary General of NATO. We decided that within the next decade, all allies will live up to the 2% target. We've been on the right track since then. I think around half of the allies will now fulfill the 2% target. At that time in 2014, it was only three. Now it's half, 14, 15, or close to, to 2%. That's good. But I think it will be important for Biden to stress that the Europeans are not off the hook. So while Trump used very harsh rhetoric, the message will be exactly the same uh, from President Biden. Maybe <laughs> expressed a bit more politely, but the essence of the message will be exactly the same. What are the most pressing issues NATO faces? And does the current debate within the alliance sufficiently reflect those issues? Basically, yes. Uh, I think while NATO has been politically weakened uh, during recent years, not least because President Trump raised doubts about uh, his commitment to Article 5, the positive news is that militarily, NATO has been strengthened. We have seen more investments, particularly European investments in defense. That's a good thing. We have seen a forward presence of NATO troops in uh, eastern territories uh, of uh, NATO. So our eastern allies uh, have benefited uh, from more NATO presence to protect them against the possible pressure from uh, Russia. That's good. But what we do need in NATO, I would say we need two things. Firstly, we need uh, to increase the capabilities in what are, I would call traditional areas like airlift. For instance, in Europe, we have more troops than in the US, but we can't move them <laughs> whenever we, we need to participate in an international operation. We have to ask the Americans to provide their transport planes. 
And of course, that's embarrassing. I mean, Europe should invest much more in heavy airlift. We should invest much more in um, sophisticated surveillance uh, capabilities, uh, drones, etc. All those modern, but also classical military capabilities should be much more in focus in Europe. So that's one thing. But secondly, we also need to prepare a strength and defense uh, against hybrid warfare uh, from Russia. And hybrid warfare, that's a mix of disinformation campaigns, election meddling in other countries, and all that kind of stuff. And in that respect, I think we need a, more, a much closer cooperation between NATO and the European Union to, to prevent uh, that kind of modern warfare. You have mentioned European Union and the cooperation with NATO. And I think this is very important because when we are talking about the hybrid warfare, but also about emerging and disruptive technologies, the EU can do something which NATO cannot do. The EU can regulate and legislate things. What kind of debate do you expect from NATO regarding emerging and disruptive technologies? Yeah, but that's a key issue, a very important question to deal with. I'm not sure NATO will take any decisions at this summit concerning those emerging technologies. But take, for instance, um, artificial intelligence. It can be used peacefully. Artificial intelligence can be used to make our daily life much more easy, much more pleasant. But it can also be used to control people, to monitor our behavior. And when it comes to security, artificial intelligence can also be used uh, to, I would say, promote new kinds of uh, warfare. Actually, you can uh, develop unmanned capabilities. You can actually, you could imagine in the future, swarms of what I would call killer drones. Uh, to attack an enemy without any risk of losing lives yourself. And um, that's that's actually a scary perspective because that increases the risk of armed conflict. When you're not risking anything yourself, then you can easily decide to send swarms of those killer drones against your enemy. And I think we have to deal with that issue. I spoke uh, in a national commission, security commission on artificial intelligence in Washington a couple of years ago. And the Americans are very much focused on this. And they have produced a report recently on how to deal with artificial intelligence and other kinds of emerging uh, technologies. I can really recommend that report. And I have suggested that NATO establishes a similar commission, a security commission on artificial intelligence to deal with those uh, issues. But I don't think NATO is prepared for that uh, right now, but it may come uh, down the road. But it's quite clear that NATO is trying to, of course, to deal with the future and to update the the strategic concept, also to identify threats and uh, enemies and adversaries. The UK integrated review just called Russia the direct and acute threats to Britain. Does it apply also to NATO, or you would be less categorical? Yeah, but no doubt that Russia is the main adversary. Actually, during my term as NATO Secretary General, we tried to develop 
what we call a strategic partnership with Russia. And actually the term strategic partnership is mentioned in the current strategic concept that was adopted back in 2010. But today, the, the, situa the security situation has dramatically uh, changed. Russia did not want that strategic partnership. On the contrary, Russia has attacked Georgia, Russia has attacked Ukraine, uh, Russia has illegally annexed Crimea into the Russian uh, Federation. So we have to adapt to that. In the concept, we have identified three core tasks for NATO. Firstly, territorial defense. Secondly, crisis management. And thirdly, cooperative security. I think in the new strategic concept, NATO 2030, territorial defense must be given a much more prominent place because it has been demonstrated that we cannot take our territorial defense or security for granted. So that must be upgraded. At the same time, we also have to broaden our definition of territorial defense. Take China as an example. As a point of departure, you would not consider China as a threat to our territorial defense, yeah, not European territory. Yeah, that's right. But because NATO, NATO is a transatlantic organization. Exactly. It's a transatlantic organization. But it also counts two Pacific members, namely the United States and Canada. And um, the interesting question is, hopefully it's theoretically, but it is an interesting question. If China were to attack America, or if we have an armed conflict uh, between America and China, should or could NATO evoke Article 5? In my opinion, yes, but that's up for discussion. And um, we have seen how China is more and more aggressive in the South China Sea, how they uh, have suppressed democracy in Hong Kong, how they are threatening Taiwan. Uh, we have seen how they have engaged in uh, strategic investments uh, in Europe, how they have exercised economic coercion against Australia and other countries, etc. So today, China is a threat, and uh, that has to be addressed in the new strategic context. What about climate change? Interestingly, NATO is trying to address the security, defense, and military implications of climate change in a more systematic way. But is it really necessary? It's a hype issue today to put everything into the climate change basket. But in one aspect, it is relevant, namely the Arctic. It's without any doubt, climate change will make the Arctic much more really much more important in the coming years. Partly because you will open new sea roads, partly because it will be easier to ex uh, exploit natural resources in the Arctic region. We have seen that in Greenland, etc. Where, by the way, the Chinese have tried to invest heavily uh, in the exploitation of raw materials. So there's no doubt that in the future, the Arctic will play an increasing role. So if climate change is addressed to develop a new Arctic strategy, then I agree that we should also deal with that. But I would rather call it a new Arctic 
focus or a new Arctic NATO strategy. And we have seen how Russia has reopened, abolished Soviet-era air bases uh, in the Arctic. So there's no doubt that we need more NATO presence in the Arctic. And we should not forget that NATO allies with territory in the Arctic are also covered by Article 5. Canada, Denmark, Norway, the US, by the way, we are all Arctic nations. And we have a right to expect to be defended if we are attacked in the Arctic region. You have mentioned that the President Biden is preparing the summit of democracies. But how much are you worried about the democratic backsliding in some NATO member states? Usually countries like Turkey and Hungary are mentioned, but no matter the country, does the alliance have any tools that could help to address this problem? Yeah. (laughs) In principle, the EU has a tool in the famous Article 7 uh, in in the the EU treaty. We don't have a mechanism in NATO, and uh, over over time, uh, we have had members of NATO that did not live up to democratic principles. I could only mention Portugal, Greece, etc. In the past, uh, we have accepted uh, non-democratic states, I would say dictatorships, as members of NATO, because NATO is focused uh, on, on, on uh, security. Having said that, I do believe that we should stress uh, the democratic principles also when it comes to, to NATO. But in, in the EU, you do have a mechanism. I, I, I would caution against using that mechanism because the only effect of that would be to strengthen national governments that do not live up to what some circles in the EU consider non-democratic principles. I remember from the very beginning of my uh, prime ministership that uh, the EU had uh, sanctioned Austria because the then chancellor of Austria, Schüssel, he had engaged in cooperation with the Freedom Party. And uh, the Social Democrats in uh, the EU did not like that. So they imposed sanctions on him uh, with no effect. On the contrary, he was strengthened. The same goes uh, if, I mean, to, to try to sanction Hungary or Poland will have exactly the same effect. The debate in those two countries will be the following. We did not get rid of the dominance from Moscow just to replace it with dominance from Brussels. So my suggestion would be another way forward, namely discussion, openness. Uh, I mean, that's much better than to introduce formal procedures. There is an interesting debate in NATO, how to use money more effectively, how to use own resources to finance operations, exercises, joint capabilities. Some countries support the idea, others, like namely France, are against it. How do you see that? Is it a way forward for the alliance to put together own resources to jointly finance operations, exercises, or capabilities? Absolutely, yes. As a general NATO, I was very much in favor of more common budget. 
because uh, in a joint effort, we can do much more, much more effectively uh, than we can on a national basis. But of course, it, it collides uh, with the discussion on national sovereignty. And that's exactly uh, the paradox when it comes to France. On the one hand, the French are speaking about European autonomy. On the other hand, they refrain from all attempts to uh, limit uh, French sovereignty. So it could only be translated into French autonomy in Europe. And uh, it doesn't work that way. I hope that down the road, we would see more common budgeting within NATO. I'm not that optimistic, but uh, we have examples. I mean, the AWACS planes is an example of a NATO uh, capability, but most capabilities are national capabilities. And uh, then NATO member states provide those capabilities for NATO operations uh, when needed. But we could do much more if we engage in what I called smart defense when I was uh, Secretary General, uh, because it's, it's smarter to do it together than do it individually. The NATO summit will not be attended by the alliance partner states like Georgia and Ukraine. And in fact, uh, we also hear some complaints from Kiev and Tbilisi. Was this the right decision? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's an old discussion. Uh, usually when I was Secretary General, we, we had meetings uh, in the Ukraine NATO Commission and the Georgian NATO Commission. I would very much have liked to see that this summit as well as a, dem a clear demonstration of our commitment to supporting the democratic forces in those two uh, countries. Uh, but it requires unanimity uh, within NATO and uh, it was not possible to, to achieve that unanimity. On the other hand, uh, President Biden called President Zelensky in the run-up to, to, to the summit. So I think he, he did what he could do uh, to underline uh, the American support for, for him and for, for Ukraine. I think we, should, we, we have an obligation to do what we can to ensure that those countries remain on the right track. I know uh, the choreography of the summit is basically arranged, but from your perspective, what would be a successful summit, not just another summit? I think this year's summit will be extremely important just because of the presence of President Biden. Because after four years with President Trump, uh, who transacted with the world rather than leading the world, and uh, who seemed uh, to be more comfortable around autocrats than he was around uh, his democratic allies, uh, the mere presence of, of President Biden will be important. So I think a successful outcome will be a recommitment from Biden to Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, our obligation to defend each other, and a commitment from European allies to actually fulfill the 2% uh, target. In my view, that would be a successful summit. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Google Podcast, and on the other platforms. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. Thank you.